morning. My name is Isaiah Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's truly a delight to gather each Sunday by Sunday. Yesterday, 15 to 18 of us got together in this room back here and got to work through some of the material that lays out who we are as a church, where we're going, what we're all about, our DNA. And I have to be honest, as I got to work through that material with a group of people, I got even more excited and even more thankful that I get to be a part of a church like Sojourn. So if you consider this your home church, if, if you're a member here, I just want to communicate to you, I'm so grateful for your partnership with us. I'm so grateful that we get to be on this journey together towards Christ-likeness as we exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ together. There's another reality I want to name in the room this morning. Uh, there are distractions in everyday life, right? And sometimes it feels like this room concentrates distractions. We've got two wonderful AC units that keep us nice and cool in here in the summer, but those things crank on, and it feels like a plane's taking off sometimes, and then they turn off, and it's like you can hear a pin drop, and the room gets really tense. It's okay. It's just part of what we live here, and then I was kind of cracking up. Jeff, I was, brother, I was trying to pray with you, but I was also enjoying the children singing something in the back room, and I'm just really thankful we have a children's ministry that, and workers and volunteers who are working so hard to disciple our children. So these are just some of the realities that we get to live with here at Sojourn, and it's a delight, it's a joy. So now let's turn our attention to the Word of God as we look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13. In June of this year, Relevant Magazine posted an article online by an anonymous author uh, who was reflecting on this psalm. And the title of that article was, Waiting in the Blank. Waiting in the Blank. That's a pretty good title for a psalm that begins by asking the same question four times. How long? How long? How long? How long? See, as David, the psalmist, considers life. He's lamenting life in the void of no answers. What he's doing is in the midst of deep personal, emotional, spiritual pain, the psalmist is waiting in the blank. But as the author of this particular article goes on and speaks of the deep lament found in Psalm 13, he says this, or the author says this, only to an outsider does this psalm of lament illustrate a failure of faith. On the contrary, it is bold faith. Because bold faith insists on presenting reality as it is experienced. It refuses to give a polite, edited-for-TV version. Prayers that arise from a contrived faith settled for a contrived God, a God who cannot handle the truth. Laments refuse to settle. They seek God and nothing less. Thus the jarring language. Look down at Psalm 13, jarring language like, how long, how long, how long, how long, forget me, forever, hide, anxious concerns, agony, enemies dominating, sleeping in death, 
triumphant enemy, foes rejoicing, I'm shaken. Jarring language. But where does the psalmist end? Look at the last phrase of the last verse. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So in this short psalm, David moves from despair that's rising out of a deep, dark pain and suffering to a place of singing joy, even though the pain has not been resolved. The circumstances have not changed. And because of that move that the psalmist makes, the title of this sermon is Making a Move on Joy. Making a Move on Joy. So let's ask the question this morning of the psalm. This is the question. What is the path in the midst of deep pain that will move us from despair to genuine joy? We're going to use the structure of the psalm to answer that question. And here's the structure that you can see just by looking down at Psalm 13. First, there are four pain points, and then three potential outcomes, two deliberate delights, and finally, one glorious reality. So let's look at first four pain points. In the first two verses, we're confronted with that question four different times. How long? How long? How long? How long? See, Psalm 13 is stuffed to the rafters with deep personal pain. And that pain comes in at least four forms. It's multifaceted. There's the pain of fear, specifically the fear of unending spiritual rejection. How long, Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Then there's the pain of feeling God distant from you in the present. How long will you hide your face from me? Then there's the pain of protracted emotional suffering. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? And then there's the pain of triumphant enemies. How long will my enemy dominate me? I wonder how many of you resonate with one or more of those pain points. Some of you may be questioning, in reality, if God has ever actually been aware of your existence. Or, in your mind, worse than that, if he's aware, he just doesn't care. Some of you may be wondering why the sweetness of your walk with God has dried up in the last six months or six years leaving only a bitter taste in your mouth of the sweetness you used to experience and the dryness of what you experience now. Some of you are emotionally spent and exhausted from the turmoil of this particular season of life. You keep trying to figure out a way to make it stop, but the agony and the pain just seems to get worse. It leaves you full of sorrow, depressed, deeply discouraged. And some of you, there's some enemy in your life 
whether it's an actual person who seems bent on antagonizing you and doing all they can to torment you in whatever socially acceptable ways, or maybe it's someone that knows how to play the manipulation game quite well in your life and plays it well on you. Or maybe it's not a personal enemy, but an impersonal enemy, like the enemy of some sin that has left you trapped, entangled, even ensnared. Or maybe it's the enemy of guilt or shame from your past, something that you've experienced, that you've done, or someone has done to you that haunts your steps with doubt and uncertainty bringing to mind the question, what is God's posture towards me right now in the present? And maybe it's all to the point for you, Christian, follower of God, where you have given up hope to the point that you have lost your voice in prayer. Perhaps you used to bring these things to God in prayer, but recently you've wondered how long you need to cry out to God, how long? before he'll give you some sort of answer. Or it's quite possible that while you identify with David's deep pain points, you've not really considered whether the God who is, is a God who invites you to voice your doubts and fears and concerns and frustrations to him in prayer. Now notice with me, in the text, two realities that directly connect to us. The first of those is this. In the midst of despair, David still has hope. And if you read verses 1 and 2, that hope doesn't appear to be there until you realize what's going on. How do we know David has hope? Because he's praying. All hope is not lost. There is someone to voice the pain to. The act of prayer in deep personal pain is an act of defiance against the status quo of life. Life in a broken world, prayer in that life is an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion against the K-sera-sera, whatever will be, will be mentality. It's an uprising against fatalism that looks at the brokenness of the world and says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I wonder if you view prayer this way. Prayer as a countercultural act of rebellion. Rebellion against the dark powers and forces conspiring to destroy the children of God who do all they can to pervert pervert every form of goodness against those who work incessantly to call into question the very bedrock deepest realities in the universe. Realities like the love of God for his children. Realities like the unending presence of God, even when it seems like he's withdrawn. 
So perhaps this morning, right now, in these moments, the Spirit of God is meeting with you to invite you to this act of prayer, a deeply countercultural, rebellious act of defiance against life in a broken world that wrestles with God. Inviting you to take up the weapon of prayer in ways that you had not yet considered. But second, notice that David's despair is working something beautiful within David. And maybe again, as we look at those first two verses, you just can't see that something beautiful. Like, where is it, Isaiah pointed out in the text. Maybe as you read verses 1 and 2, the lyrics from the Christian music band Hawk Nelson from a song written in 2013 resonate with you. The song goes, I can feel the sun before its light. I can see my breath in the air on a cold night, but I can't see your face or hear your voice right now. All I hear is pain. It's the only sound. Hawk Nelson sang those songs in 2013. In May of 2020, their lead singer, Jonathan Steingard, posted on Instagram that he no longer believes in God. For Steingard, the pain and dissonance of life in a broken world moved his heart away from God towards the long, slow death of unbelief. But for David, and for the child of God, when he or she can hear only pain, when it seems to be the only sound, when he can't see God's face and she can't hear his voice or feel his presence, where does it move the child of God in those moments? It moves us towards God. And that is beautiful. Because in those moments, it's, God, it seems like you're withdrawing it. I'm, I'm not giving up that easily, though. It's the spiritual stubbornness of Jacob that's wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ in Genesis 32, and his divine opponent starts to pull away. And what does Jacob say? No, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And in the midst of David and Jacob's struggle and pain, their God-given instinct of posturing themselves towards God is not weakened. It's strengthened. How? By the very pain and suffering that they so desperately want to be done with. That becomes the very means by which they cry out and pursue God harder and harder and harder. This is the outworking of Romans 8. More than a thousand years before it was written, God is orchestrating all things in real time for David's good, for his growth and godliness, for his trust to be strengthened and his walk to be deepened. But here's the reality. In the midst of life in a broken world, how do you and I interpret pain and suffering and trials so often? 
God is leaving me. But in reality, the trials, the pain, the suffering in the lives of the followers of Jesus, that pain and struggle that we so desperately want to, be remove, want to remove, that make it seem like God has turned his back on us, these are the means by which God is drawing us closer and closer and closer and closer. And I'm guessing that with most of us, we believe this in theory, but we struggle with it in reality. When the diagnosis comes back positive, when the finances are drying up, when the relational realities in a family starts to crumble, and when the pain just seems too great. So, child of God, where do you take your pain first and foremost? Your answer may well reveal your functional God. Our culture says, look within to fix your pain. You have all of the resources you need. Just look within, believe in yourself, and you'll be able to fix it. You can rise above it. You have the resources within you to find healing. And while that message is incredibly encouraging, there's only one problem with it. It's wrong. We don't have the resources within ourselves. Now, certainly, we ought to take responsibility for our mistakes and put down the guilt and the shame that we carry from others' treatments of us, but genuine deliverance, lasting deliverance, it must come from outside of us, not from within us. Your pain is an invitation to look up, not to look in. Our culture also says, self-medicate your pain. If you can't handle it, then whatever it takes is fair game. If it's booze or entertainment or distraction or sex or mindless thumb scrolling. But child of God, these are poor replacements for deliverance. Because in fact, these options are full of deceit and they're only going to increase and expand your pain. And if we turn to self-medication in our pain, we are missing the invitation of Psalm 13. Our pain is a direct imitation from the God who is both sovereign and good. So sovereign that He has the, both the will and the power to turn your pain into something beautiful and so good that He refuses to remove the pain from your life because it's going to accomplish something more beautiful, more powerful, more incredible than any measure of pleasure and joy and satisfaction could ever accomplish in your life. And your Father loves you too much to remove the power of pain in your life when He is orchestrating it for your eternal good. 
Our pain is intended to draw us closer and closer to our Father. So the question is, will you allow it to? So we're asking this question. What is the path in the midst of our deep personal pain that will move us from despair to genuine joy? And as David's four pain points show, the first step on that path is a move towards prayer. Raw, honest, real prayer. But notice next, in our structure of the psalm, there are three potential outcomes. As David surveys his pain and the causes of his pain, he then lays out, God, if you don't answer, this is what might happen. Now, the ESV uses the word lest in front of each sentence, each phrase. The CSB, the version in front of me, is far less clear about what these potentials are. So I'm going to have us read a translation by Alec Motier. We're going to read it out loud together. You can see it on the screen. So we can see from the text what these potential outcomes are. Maybe. Tell you what, I'll just read them. Take notice. Answer me, Yahweh my God, enlighten my eyes in case I sleep in death, in case my enemy says I have proved able for him, and in case my adversary delight that I have slipped. So what are the three potential outcomes that David uses as a motivation for God to answer him? First, potential physical destruction. Second, potential final triumph for David's enemies. And third, potential shame for David due to his fall in the midst of pain. Now, there's instruction here for us. Consider who is penning this prayer. David, the anointed, soon-to-be king of Israel. He's leveraging the potential outcomes of his current circumstances, and he's using them in prayer to beg to God to act. So in our modern terminology, what would we say David is doing? He's engaging in a form of what-ifing. So let's make a silly comparison here. Remember back to when you were six years old and you are really, really hungry. You knew supper was coming. Mom had promised it, but that seems like hours away. And your stomach just can't handle it right now. So you put on your best begging face and you approach mom. And somehow, your six-year-old self manages to string together sentences like this. How long, mom? How long until you fill my belly with food? How long until you stop ignoring me and attend to my needs? How long until you realize that this enemy called hunger is truly causing some chaos down in my six-year-old belly? 
So mom, please listen to me in case these hunger pains do me in before supper. And in case these hunger pains get the last laugh and decide they just won't ever leave, wouldn't that be awful? And in case this hunger just overwhelms me and makes me do things I don't really want to do and puts me to shame, mom, help me. So question, in most circumstances, how is an earthly mom who is kindly dispositioned to her child, how is she going to respond? Probably with the warmth of her embrace. Maybe with reassurance of her care. And maybe, just maybe, a mid-afternoon snack that reminds your six-year-old self that hunger pains are not forever. What is Psalm 13 inviting us to? It's inviting us to a childlike, desperate, honest faith. David is uttering things that may or may not be true in the sense of factually accurate, but they are nonetheless true in the sense of being honest fears for David. And David, without shame, calls them up to his defense as he approaches God in prayer. The what-ifs are turned into into a prayer. God, answer me so that my what-ifing doesn't have a chance to become, I told you so. Childlike, sincere, raw, honest faith voiced to God in prayer. And friends, is God less kindly postured towards his children than a child is towards her hungry six-year-old? If you ask for bread, will he give you a stone? If you ask for fish, will he give you a serpent? Will he not in the same way Answer your prayers with the warmth of his embrace, with reassurances of his care for you, and maybe, just maybe, with a bit of relief for you in your pain. And it may be that all three of those answers will come into the situation without the situation ever changing. But you will come to see that his presence was never actually withdrawn from you. After all, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you'll come to see that his care for you is only as deep and as limitless and eternal and as matchless as his love for his only beloved son, Jesus. That's only as deep as it goes. And maybe you'll see that the relief you seek is not found in the removal of your pain but rather in the fellowship with the three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So how different might our prayer lives look if we talk to God with this same degree of unashamed boldness? Like a child, honest, raw, emotional, not cleaned up, just real. 
So as David makes a move on joy in the midst of his pain, he lists his grievances to God in four points. Then he calls to his defense three potential outcomes if God doesn't answer. But then he chooses two deliberate delights. Two deliberate delights. Look at verses 5 and 6. David says, But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he's treated me generously. Now, our translation, the CSB here, has the word but at the beginning of verse 5. That indicates there's a contrast here, but that word could actually also be translated and. And I think that's actually what David is communicating. There's not a contrast here. It's not a this is happening, but this is happening. It's a this happening, and in the midst of this, I'm going to do this. It's simply a continuation of what's happening. In the midst of pain and pleading, David is also trusting. And that trust, that faith looks like delighting or rejoicing in something. So how do we make a move on joy? Well, first, we choose to delight in the character of God. Do you see how David describes who God is in verse 5? He mentions God's faithful love. Now, I intentionally don't make a habit of quoting from the original languages in a sermon, but in this case, this is a word that you ought to be familiar with for the sake of your own joy. It is the word hesed. Maybe you've heard it before. Hesed, the hesed of God, is his committed, faithful, loyal, unrelenting, undiminishing, unalterable, steadfast love. Maybe if you're familiar with the old King James, you remember the phrase loving kindness. That's the hesed of God. It is his goodness leveraged with its full torque, unstoppable and unfathomable. And in the midst of circumstances that could easily call the love of God into question, David's rebellion against the status quo says this, I'm going to make a deliberate choice to believe that God's love is oriented towards me in such a way that it's unending, that it's faithful, it's loyal, it's steadfast, it's sure. And nothing in my circumstances is going to sway me from that belief. Psalm 13 invites us into this rebellion and towards a fierce delight in the love of God. But how can David and how can we see this goodness of God on display in its full force towards him or towards us in love. Well, second, we choose to delight in the deliverance of God. Now, deliverance doesn't seem to have come as we come to the end of Psalm 13. It doesn't seem like the circumstances have changed, and that's actually really good news for us. Because that means for you, even though you're going to walk out of these doors and the pain is still going to be there, 
A 45-minute sermon does not fix the pain. The pain will still be there, but the fact that deliverance is coming is hope. And we don't have to wait to see what has been promised in order to believe it now and to delight in it now. And it seems that David is making a twofold statement here. I'm going to deliberately choose to rejoice in the many ways you've delivered me in the past, while at the same time going to count your future deliverance from my present circumstances as good as done. Because I choose to believe you're going to act in decisive and final ways on my behalf to crush my adversaries and to deliver me fully and finally. So David says, I'm just going to go ahead and just delight right now in that still future deliverance. While using God's past deliverance as a buoy for faith and to strengthen our resolve in the present. And notice how David ends the psalm with this all-inclusive statement, God has been generous to me. Really, David? You who started off with four how-longs have the unmitigated gall to tell me, the reader, God has been generous to you? Well, David's move on joy is complete. The painful circumstances have not changed. The hurt and the questions remain. But David shows us how to take the path in the midst of deep personal pain to genuine joy. And as we make a move on joy, we must be convinced of finally one glorious reality. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So God, through David, is weaving together three threads to form an unbreakable cord in these final two verses. Faithful love, deliverance, and generosity. Now, how are these three ideas connected? This is the big idea for this morning's message. In God's unrivaled generosity, God's faithful love towards you secures your deliverance. And each of these is crucial to believe, to make a move on joy from despair to delight. So let's take it apart. If God is faithfully loving and generous, but he's incapable of providing deliverance, then we are left to worship a wonderful but weak being whom we know cares for us but can't actually deliver us. But this is not the God we worship. But what if God promises deliverance, but it's conditional upon something within me or something within you? God says, I'll deliver you if some action you must accomplish, some reality you must obtain. Then we're sunk, aren't we? Like we have no hope. 
And God is no longer generous. Because if it's a quid pro quo arrangement, you do for me, I do for you, then that's not generosity. And even more serious than that, if our deliverance is based in any way upon something we must do, then we are destined for destruction. But no. God's faithful covenant love, His hesed, promises and secures our deliverance. And that love's Love comes from outside of us, precedes us, goes before us, goes before anything good or bad we could ever do or have ever done, secures a covenant through the blood of Jesus, and then invites us into that covenant so we have deliverance. This is the generosity of God. This is the love of God. This is the deliverance of God all tied together, and it's found in a person. The greater than David, Jesus. God shares this love with us not based upon something we have done, but based solely upon his absolute and pure generosity. For David, deliverance eventually came. He would say in 2 Samuel 23, 5, God has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. Will he not bring about my whole salvation and deliverance? But friends, a greater than David has appeared. He's the mediator of a better covenant with us. He's the fullest expression of the generosity of God. God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. Jesus is the fullest expression of the faithful love of God. God demonstrated his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And friends, Jesus is the fullest expression of the deliverance of God. No matter how deep the pain, no matter how overwhelming the circumstances, no matter how powerful the enemy, no matter how long the wait. The one who trusts in Jesus is the one who will experience the deep and everlasting deliverance of God. So to paraphrase David, won't God, for Jesus' sake, bring about our whole salvation and our every desire because of his faithful love and his limitless generosity?